let me just tell you something about myself real quick. I had a less than stellar high school basketball career. Started out um, having never played basketball before, but because I was a 15-year-old who was six foot tall, although I only weighed about 130 pounds, you know, that was still an asset for a ninth grade basketball coach. So they recruited me into play. My, my job was to basically stand in the middle of the lane and hold my hands up and not move. Um, that was like the way that, you know, they could use my skill level. Um, but I had a lot of heart, had a lot of hustle, um, and I did develop a little bit. And, and I would say the highlight of my basketball career was my junior year. Um, that was the one year that I could dunk. I think I could dunk for about two weeks. I, I practiced a lot, and, and I was able to just in the right conditions, the humidity was right, and all was right, and I was just able just to get it up over the rim and get it in there. It was also the year that I, that I actually started a few games. Now, it was the first six games of the season, and it was the six games of the season when all of our starters were still playing football, and so they had to fill the spots, and so there was only like a nine-man roster, and so... At least I wasn't the bottom four, so I got to start a few games. I had my highest scoring game was, uh, was six points, and it was all off of free throws, and I might have shot like 15 free throws. Um, so it was just not a great career. But the other highlight of my junior year was that I had the privilege of being coached by Coach Wiley. He was this guy, he looked like Tom Selleck, but taller. And, and he, he was, like, I'm thinking about it now, he's probably my age now, like he was probably 40, and I'm 41-ish, whatever. The guy could still play. I mean, he could ball. He would, he, he would dunk from almost the free throw line. And, like, and he had a few of these. He was like that, that wise, proverbial coach that always had these sage-like inspirational things to say in the moments to get us moving. Like a, a couple of them that I remember. One was any high school player can score 60 points a game like I did if you work hard enough on the fundamentals. And all I can say is that I obviously didn't work hard enough because you heard my highest scoring game, six points. So if I were to work ten times harder – who knows what could have happened? Maybe I wouldn't be here. Maybe I would be pastoring in the NBA. I don't know. So the other thing that he would always say, and this is the one that kind of sticks a lot, is he says, it's when you work, when you're, when you're tired, that you get better. He would make us run suicides, and then we would have to go and shoot free throws. And if we didn't shoot 90% as a team, we'd then have to go and do ladder runs and then come back and shoot free throws. And if we didn't shoot 90% of the team, then he would make us go and run again until we shot 90% as a team. And I just remember always, it is when you work when you're tired that you get better. And I tell you, if there's anything that my kids are going to begrudge me for saying their entire childhood, it's going to be that one. I hear all the time, there's six and five, and they already hear it. Daddy, I'm tired. I'm like, well, it's when you work when you're tired, you get better, Gavin. So anyway, but it sticks. And I'll just say this. This is kind of where we're at today. Paul's been taking us through some hard truths these past few weeks of these first few chapters of Romans. And you may be getting weary of hearing about how rough it is how rough you are, how bad you are, how, how worthy of judgment and condemnation you are. You may be getting a little weary. So I just want to encourage you this week, today, if we keep working at it, it's when we're going to get stronger. This is really when this section of Romans comes to a close of, of Paul just making it abundantly clear that we just aren't good on our own. Looking at verses 9 through 20 today, uh, if you, if you um, don't have a Bible, there's one underneath you, uh, underneath a chair near you. Feel free to use that. And if you, if you need a Bible, please take that with you. That's our gift to you. We'll also have the verses on the screen. And if you use the YouVersion Bible app, you can go to the events tab and look for us and we'll pop up right away because of GPS. And you can follow along through there. There's the text that we're going to be using and as well as a few questions to help you dig deeper after today. So, let me just stop for a moment. Let me pray, okay? 
God, you are good. Lord, we, I just pray right now just for a humbling of our hearts, God. I just pray for um, just our minds, our intellect, our reason, Lord, to, to just be kind of pliable. Lord, just before you, Lord, as we, as we seek to reconcile Lord, your truth of how we understand life and who we are and what you have given us in this glorious picture of redemption in your word through Christ. I pray that, wouldn't we, that we wouldn't be afraid to work hard in what is difficult. Lord, knowing that as we dig deeper and we kind of lean into the discomfort, Lord, that you will meet us there. Lord, that you will answer and Lord, you will bring wisdom. You will bring... bring, you will bring um, wholeness, God. You will bring freedom and redemption and all because of your will and your work in Christ. So Lord, we give you this time, Lord, speak through me, in spite of me, God, whatever it takes, Lord, we confess, and I confess that if anything good is to happen today out of this teaching, it is going to be because you, the Holy Spirit, has taken these words from my mouth and caught them aflame in our hearts. So Lord, we need that. Transform us for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you're all there by now, we're going to just read our text in full today and work through it, okay? So Romans 3, 9 through 20, Paul is just bringing it home. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, so after reading that, I want to remind us of something. See, it's very important that we read Scripture rightly, that we understand what it is. This book, this, this book is not just a collection of individual writings that are loosely associated or loosely relayed or just kind of that they had a common enough message that they could put them in. This, all of Scripture, this word is one cohesive story of God's redemptive work revealing who He is who we are, what his creation is, what the purpose of it all is, how and how we can know him. So this, this word that God gave us is the story of redemption. Why does redemption exist? To say that there is a work of redemption implies that there is a need of redemption. And for there to be a need of redemption, there has to be a problem. So there's a problem in this world, in this book this, this word that God has given us is meant to show us how to overcome and to expose what the problem is. We're in the middle of Paul's recap of the entire redemptive story of the Bible. He's doing that in chapters 1 through 4 here. So we're coming to the end of chapter 3 almost. 
And so we're kind of right in the middle of his recap of the entire redemptive work of Scripture. He's talking about what is the gospel. He wants to lay it out and make it clear. So what is the problem of this world? You know, and I find myself in conversations all the time about what is faith, what is life, what's it about, and everyone's got their ideas and their ways to, to peace and their ways to fullness. And, and one of the questions that always remains is, okay, that's all nice and good, but what about sin? What do you do with sin? Our problem in this world is sin. It's a really small word but its destruction is immeasurable for all of humanity, all of us. So the problem is sin. So today's text, the text that we just read, is, is Paul giving us kind of a summary of the biblical doctrine of sin. It's the summary statement, if you will. So this passage is challenging for everyone, as, as Andy said earlier. It's challenging. It pushes up against our, our pride and our sense of worth, our sense of fairness. It's, it's a difficult passage. And if you've been with us throughout these previous teachings of, of and Paul, maybe we're a little weary of it. It seems over the top. It seems extreme. It seems like maybe we could dismiss it as, oh, Paul's just being hyperbolic to make a point. But it's not. Paul wants us to understand sin according to the truth of God and the biblical worldview. So my prayer is that today, for today in our study you know, right now, is to come through this text actually being totally transformed, or at least in the process. And transformed in the way that we see and think about ourselves and the world and sin. Today, we'll see three things about sin through this text. First, we're going to see the egalitarian nature of sin. We're going to see the trajectory of sin. And we're going to see our cure for sin. So first, we come to the egalitarianism of sin. So maybe I should start just by defining egalitarianism, right? Because that's like, okay, that sounds good, but let's just define it real quick. Egalitarianism is this. It is belief in the equality of all people, especially in political, social or economic life. So, think about that when we say we're going to be uncovering and seeing the egalitarianism of sin, the egalitarian nature of sin. Did you see what verses 9 through 10 said? Let's read it again just in case. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, and by the way, from Paul's frame of reference, that's everybody, because there's only two categories of people for the Jew, and that is Jew and Greek slash Gentile, same thing. Jew or Greek are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So Paul has been hitting this message over and over and over, and let me just say it one more time, and over again up to this point. Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. They, they are. They're equally culpable before God. If we remember, as Paul is working to bring unity in the Roman church where there is Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, he's working to expose, and he addresses both. And if we remember earlier in chapter 1, Paul was addressing the lawless 
sin-filled life of the Gentile. Remember this list of 22 sins? Some of them kind of made your toes curl, and then you had other ones in there like being you know, disobedient to your parents. Like, that, remember that list? That's the life of the Gentile he's talking about, this, this self-defined moral morality, this hedonistic, pleasure-driven, self-driven, running toward every indulgence way of life that was common for the Gentile, for the Greek culture. Then he's also addressing later, just after that, the law-filled arrogance of the Jewish person who thought they were a people of privilege because being God's covenant people, they had taken his promise and claimed it as their own and found themselves to be superior. They were filled with piety and, 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 self, and like this kind of haughty discipline to live out the Ten Commandments and to make sure everyone else did as well and to do it just as the way that they prescribed Paul, by the way, identified with the Jews, and he said this. You remember this? He said, are we any better off? He identifies with them, not at all. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the moral and the immoral, the religious and the secular, no difference. All are under sin. So what does that mean? Let's skip down a little bit. Look down to verse 19 real quick. It says this, the whole world... Because we've already defined that all are under the law, whether you know it or not, because God has written it on our hearts, and we show it in the fact that we have a sense of right and wrong. He says, the whole world may be held accountable to God. So what's he saying? Accountable here is this word, it's liable for punishment. It's a judicial word. It's that you're before the judge, the judge has found you guilty and accountable, that you have to pay the price. What is Paul saying? He's saying no matter who you are or what you've done or, or, or where you've lived or how you've lived, you're accountable. Do you see Paul is just, he's busting the entire category of kind of, of what is right, what, is, what, what makes you right. Whether you've lived compassionate and materialistically, you know, materialistically generous lives, or, or whether you've lived a life of greed, cruelty, and exploitation, Paul is saying we're all alike in our standing before God in those actions. We're all condemned. You're like, I don't like where this is going, right? Okay, good, so let's keep going. We're all, we're, we're all lost and deserve to be rejected by God. This is tough. I said it was a challenging text. So, so how, how can that be? How can that be? If we think about, like, actually just stop and think for a moment and weigh some people's lives, let's just remove ourselves out of it, and just some, some, some people's lives of history or just in the news that we know about. How, how can we look at that and, and say and, and kind of reconcile that? We're going to cover that more in the next point, but for now... I want us to look at two implications of this reality, this reality that the criminal and the murderer and the moral religious person who thinks their good deeds make God owe them a blessing are in the exact same place in their standing before God. So let's look at these. Paul is saying that what is happening under all of these actions is where we see that we are all the same. These actions come from some kind of complete self-sitterness and, and self-absorption. So let's look at it this way. Let's follow a typical way someone begins to pursue Christianity. Typical framework. 
See, people, people say, I, I want to see what this is all about. And they, they think they're starting with a blank slate. But everybody comes with some kind of modality, some kind of framework of, of how it works. They come in with this preconceived idea. And it's basically some form of this. When people start thinking, I'm going to check this out, this is basically what's in their mind. So there are some things that I need to do for God. And if I do this or that, if I do these things, God will do these things for me. That's kind of the basic, or, or to put it another way, you know, like what is the spiritual life? It's kind of asking the questions, okay, so what do I have to stop doing that is bad? And what do I have to start doing that is good in order for me to be considered to live a good life? That's kind of where we all start. We think it's blank, but that's kind of the basic questions we're asking. So really, what we're looking for and what we're asking is, is the payoff of what God can do for me good enough for what I have to do for him? Is what I have to stop doing worth what I get out of it and what I have to start doing? Paul's making, it, making sure, he's making sure that it's abundantly clear that what it is to come to Jesus, to be redeemed, to find salvation, is much more than just stopping doing certain things and starting to do other certain things, stopping doing the wrong things and starting to do the right things. Again, he wants to bust that category all together. And that's where we all start. Do you see the uniqueness here? No other religion or worldview sees it this way. They would all say it is about doing, stop doing enough bad things and start doing enough right things, and then you'll be good, and then this God will be respondent to you. This is category buster. And, and let me just be clear, this is not to say we shouldn't pursue a changed life, that we don't have a part. We should absolutely seek to see a changed life. A transformed life is absolutely part of our faith in Christ. It just can't be the main thing. Why? Because the people we see here that Paul's talking about, the people who live the good life and the people who live the bad life are all alike in their standing according to God. Do you see that here in what Paul is teaching? So it can't just be about our behavior. It can't just be about our scales measuring upright. It's about something else. So what's the other implication? We're going to work through this, don't worry. But what's the other implication of this egalitarian nature of sin? Let's come back to Paul. Do you remember who he is, who he was? Paul says this. He says, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the Jew of all Jews. He was zealous for God's purpose and his people. He was zealous for his Ten Commandments. He was militantly committed to them. He viewed the people of Israel as the superior people and the superior race and all others were looked down upon. Not just looked down upon, but, but despised. To share company with would be unthinkable, much less to compliment or much less to say, I am the same. no way he would have considered himself as an equal for the gospel. That's the work of the gospel. You're no longer to sit in haughty judgment in some kind of racial or, or, or kind of positional superiority. But somehow you get to see yourself the same. So it's so important to see that all of humanity is completely sinful. 
this rehumanizes all of us. It, it makes it impossible to exclude any or place yourself above others. If you want a real quick picture of that, we just went through a great crisis here in Houston with Harvey. Mass, mass need. Mass vulnerability. What did you see? You saw people that had never interacted, that had even sat in judgment of one another, coming together in one accord. Coming together to help their neighbor. Coming together to receive help and give help. This great need exposed the commonality. Through great need came this unity. So this is what we see in this egalitarian nature of sin as well, is that it rehumanizes all of us in our own eyes. We cannot sit in a higher position. We are humbled. And all of a sudden, we can look at each other the way that God sees us. Okay, so the egalitarian nature of sin next is the trajectory of sin. Why is this important? What do we do in the statement in verse 11? What do we do with this statement where it says, no one seeks God? Or maybe in verse 12 where it says, no one is good. Like when you heard that, first off, like did you hear it? Did it sink in? And then maybe did it cause you to like kind of have a little like, but wait, but wait, 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 wait. I don't know if I could agree with this because we can all agree. We can all say that we see people every day who do good things. And we see people who seem to seek God. Right? We can all say that. So what again, what is Paul saying here? Let's look a little closer. He says, no one seeks God. He says, all have turned aside. Do you recognize what these are? These are directional words. Speaking of trajectory, they're directional words. This means sin is much less about what you are doing and not doing and much more about why you're doing and not doing. See, sin, thinking about the trajectory of sin, it makes you want to get away from God. It always has and it always will. Let's just take it back to the first moment, Adam and Eve in the garden, living, abiding in perfect unity, perfect fellowship. They sinned from God. What did they do? They hid. They got in the bush and they hid. And God's walking and he's like, where are you guys? Like he doesn't know. He just wants to expose to themselves that they're hiding. Uh, we were afraid. We hid from you. They turned away. So the sin will always, sin will always want us to get away from God. And there's two ways to keep away from God. One is just to deny his truth and kind of to be your, not to kind of, just to be your own source of truth. Or in Paul's language, to be a law to yourself that you get to determine what is true, that you get to be the authority to say what is true, and that you, so if you acknowledge God, then in that posture, then all of a sudden, like we said, I think it was last week or the week before, that we go and try to create God in our image. We go and we turn around and say, well, no, I get to de decide finally what is true, what of his claims I can acknowledge is true. So that's one way that we can get, get away from God is just to be our own source of truth and therefore get to live our own way or the other way to keep away from God is just to work to be very, 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 very good. Just to make sure that you're good enough so that you're achieving your own righteousness, you're achieving your own right standing, so that we have no need for him. That falls, up, falls very short. 
do you notice this? It doesn't say no one seeks blessings from God. It doesn't say no one seeks answers from God. No one seeks mercy from God. No one seeks forgiveness from God. No one seeks peace from God. Everyone does that. No problem with that. What it says is no one seeks God, period. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying all of our seeking is really for ourselves. It's really for ourselves and it's toward ourselves. It is somehow toward you and away from God and for you and not for God. And away from others as well. That's the trajectory of sin. So if we think about the framework we start with, what do I have to do and what do I get and and is it worth it? So this is really what it's calling us to is this heart of why we do what we do is really much more important. So the trajectory of sin will always cause us to turn from God. Paul is saying this, that long before sin becomes behavioral, it's relational. That we have turned from God, our sovereign, majestic God, creator, who is also our heavenly father. Long before our sin becomes behavioral, it's relational. We've turned from God. Paul's saying, left to ourselves, we will only seek ourselves. So even in our good efforts, they are measured to make sure that we benefit enough. Of course, we should always pursue and celebrate good deeds, but Paul is talking about the heart. and He's talking about redemption here and our standing before a holy God not just what is practically good for our world. We need the Holy Spirit to come and transform our motives, and that happens in Christ alone. So if you doubt God or your, or your faith every time something goes wrong, I want to encourage you to dig into grace and what our call to God in Christ is. Just, just because you have sinful remnants doesn't mean you aren't saved. But you should dig into your understanding of what salvation is for and what it accomplishes. Tim Keller, in sharing his own testimony and learning this truth, says this. He says, now, only now that everything is going wrong in your life, now we'll find out whether you got into this faith to get God to serve you or in order, or in order to serve God. Now we'll know. Sin is the problem of our world, and the trajectory of sin is radical self-centeredness. This is the cause of all conflict, is that the self-interest, the selfish ambition and motive of all of humanity. So let us be humble and grateful for this truth. So, with that being said, we're in this place of like, okay, like, where's the payoff? We all need this. Let's get to the cure for sin. We've looked at verses 9 through 12. Let's quickly reread verses 13 through 20. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. By the way, just remember, he's talking about all of us. This is describing all of us, not just someone else. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
Okay, that's rough. It's real bad. It gets real bad. Like it just gets worse before it gets better, definitely. But did you see what it said in verse 19? This is the first step to our cure for, our cure for sin. What it said this, it said, every mouth, that every mouth may be stopped. That every mouth may be silenced. That it's a loving way of saying, like, you just need to shut up sometimes. Why? Paul's saying, just stop. Just stop and listen for a minute. Just stop and listen. What are, we, what are we listening to? Be humbled, shut your mouth, and listen to God's truth. And that is like the most loving thing you could say. So whether you're, saying, whether you're sitting there saying you've done too much, or you haven't done enough, or you've done enough not to need, or you haven't done enough to need, like right, all these different kind of ways we can come at it to justify ourselves, all of these things either they expose a self-centered view of this world, and our redemption and our need. See, it's not just confessing what you have or have not done and trying to do better. It's a matter of allowing God to expose why you do what you do and don't do. Again, digging deep into the heart. God is saying there's nothing you can do to overcome this, so you need to be still, listen, and then receive. 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 That's why it's loving to say, stop, shut up, listen. Because the next thing is receive. You want to change heart and not just change behavior, receive. Listen to how John Gerstner put it. He says this, the way to God is wide open. No sin can hold him back because God has offered justification to the ungodly Nothing now stands between the sinner and God, but the sinner's good works. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. So that's the first part of our cure. Stop talking, listen, and receive what you cannot do yourself. The other part of the cure is right here in verse 18. It says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What, what, what was before that? This is where like that, that whole list of just like, I, I can't, it's hard for me. Like I, I just want to like, put like nonstick spray when I read this on myself. So like these things, like, that's kind of when I, I read this and I somehow just want to make sure it doesn't stick to me. Like whether I just kind of want to have that shield because it's just rough. All these things, these expressions of just like the worst, like, especially if you have any affection for God, to think that we could embody this. The throat is an open grave. Ah, you know, like, but the reason all those things can exist is because there's no fear of God before, before their eyes. This lack of fear is how all of these previous sins could be there. The fear of God is the antidote. Fear of the fear of the Lord is a major concept all through Scripture. It, it's, a, it's a thread through all of Scripture. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom we see in Job and Psalms and Proverbs. What does that mean? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is saying that until you fear God, you will not be able to come anywhere close to understanding Him rightly as He is to be understood. So what is the fear of the Lord in the Bible? It's not just this intimidation and terror, right? It can't be that. It doesn't seem right. So let's look at some verses maybe to help shape our view. 
Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So to fear God is to love him. To fear God is for your good. Psalm 119, 38, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. We fear God because he's kept his promises. Whoa. You kept your promise to me and now I'm supposed to fear you. Like that does, so we obviously see we're getting a better view of what it is to fear God. Psalm 130, verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Who doesn't want forgiveness? Our forgiveness leads to our fearing God. So it must be a wonderful thing. To fear God is to love him. To fear God is to know him. To fear God, come, we fear God from experience his faithfulness to his promises. We fear God because we are forgiven. So it must be a wonderful thing. It can't be just to be intimidated by him. It's much more glorious than that. To fear God is a gift because of who he is. Is it an expression of joy? Doesn't it sound like joy more than fear? I don't want to take the word fear away. I just want us to see it rightly. Why? It's much more than just happiness. When you realize you're accountable to a holy, loving generous, grace-giving, promise-keeping, forgiveness-giving, judgment-satisfying God, you cannot be help but be filled with fear and joy. It's the kind of thing that makes you feel limitless and like you can fly on the one hand, like literally. I remember, I remember a friend of mine that came to the beautiful realization of the gospel and he says, Heath, I had this epiphany and in, in the work of Christ in my life, and he says, I just got to tell you, I'm literally bulletproof. And I was like, let's talk that out just to make sure. And, and he's talking about like, no matter what happens in this world, my hope is secure. No matter what happens in this world, I know who I am. That's what he's saying. That's what So it makes you limitless and like makes you feel limitless and like you can fly on the one hand and the other at the same time, you are humbled to the dust. Like you just, like just bury your face in the mud and just don't want to lift it because he's far too great. You don't care. It's the best thing that could be happening in that moment. That's the picture here. So instead of God reminding that we, that we are to find him, call like demanding that we find him like other religions, God is in all of his majesty has sought us out. Yes. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. You are all completely in need, unable to overcome. But stop. Listen. Receive. Turn to me. As I was working through this, there's a good friend of mine and I'll tell you, so last week we had Amber share her testimony on my sermon. We're about to have another testimony. And I just got to say, this is a word of warning here. The way that this happens is that you um, spend time with me and you're honest. <laughs> and so um, 
So that's a, a warning or an invitation, whichever one. Um, but as I was working through this, echoes of mine and Dave Tenhage's conversations, which he, is he back in here yet? There he is, sweet. Echo, echoes of our conversations came through and some of his testimony of how this specific passage God used in his life, his story, his life put flesh on this for me. So I, I've asked him just to come and take a few minutes just to share some of his journey and how this text influenced him and then we'll close our sermon today. Pray with me really quick. <clears throat> Lord, uh, I just pray that you would, you would speak words through me and uh, that you would use my words in a useful way um, or else that you would stop my mouth <laughs> from speaking, uh, Lord. Um, Lord, uh, just help, help us cultivate hearts uh, that are just molded by your truth and see you as a hero of our story, as, uh, as you have been for me. In Jesus' name, amen. So I told uh, Heath that this is one of the, probably one of the most impactful passages of Scripture in my life. And it happened uh, really while I was in college. I had been a Christian for a while. Uh, so when Heath asked me to talk about it, I had to think back. I was like, why was this so impactful? And I had to kind of go on the journey again. And I was having a really, really hard time um, ex expressing how this kind of morbid passage brought me great peace. And um, so I went through it all again and went back to college. And really, this has happened many times since college. But I thought back, and I, I remember really questioning my faith in college. Like, why did I come to Christ? Because my, my gut instinct that it was not a totally pure motive you know, I, uh, Heath talked about this. I think I saw the benefits of Christ. I, I knew he could bring me peace. I knew he could bring me salvation for eternity. I knew all the things he could bring me. So really, I was like, is that okay if I came to Christ just for the benefits? You know, it's like I was just questioning, was my, was my, was my faith a real faith? Was it a pure faith? And my gut feeling was no, no, no it isn't. And so I think when I read this passage, that really like affirmed that to me. Uh, it all it all it said, "No one seeks God, no, not one." Um, and so for a second, it brought me some comfort because it's like me and everybody are the same. I'm no worse than anybody else. Um, literally, this happened to Paul or John the Baptist or the mother of Jesus, Mary. And so, um, but then the next thing I felt was like terror, because I was like, clearly, this coming to Christ, we don't choose God. It says no one does. Uh, he chooses us. And so what that made me realize is um, we, we do have free will, uh, but we freely choose the wrong thing every time, and we always will unless God steps in. Um, this is something that's out of our hands. Uh, it's truly God is the hero of each of our story. If we come to him, it's not because we objectively saw the truth and chose it. It's because God decided to save us. Um, there's nothing else, everything else in our lives, we can try to pursue and gain excellence by hard work and effort. But there's no way of getting around a sinful heart. It takes God stepping in. And doing that, and it makes the passage make sense. Uh, he that began a good work in you will, you know, the, he's the author and the perfecter of your faith. He started it, and he's going to perfect it. 
And so um, it also helps us to like look at our friends who we love and we want to see come to know the Lord. We can't deliver a perfect message that will save anybody. We can't work to bring it. We can't work to make them Christians. Only God can change their hearts. And so it's putting all the power in God's hands and not ours. And I think everything that Heath preached, I think, is so cool because sometimes you're not sure if a pastor is just saying words or. But, like, that was everything in my life. Like, I was stopped, humbled, and I needed to be. Like, I couldn't take the weight of knowing my salvation depended on something from me or the salvation of my brothers. I literally came to a breaking point with each of my brothers, you know, where I wept because the pressure was too great, and... I didn't see them coming to the Lord, and I was trying my hardest. It, it makes you ultimately look at God and have to trust that he's a good God and his plan is better than your plan. Because, And that was hard to do. Literally, with each one of my brothers, I had to say, God, his life is yours. This is not my control. And I just have to trust that you're good. You know, and... Um, so there's, there's a lot more that I could say, and I would love to say, and I would love to talk... Uh, you know, this doesn't take away uh, human responsibility. Um, it just puts us in our right place, and, uh, and that's, that's needed. So um, if you want to talk more about it, I'd love to share more. I had, you know, pages of notes, and I think I used the first couple sentences of it. So um, thanks. Thank you, Dave. We love you, man. So to be clear, when we say all of our righteousness results to nothing, we're talking about left to ourselves in our effort, in our wisdom, in our righteousness. We all fall short of the standard given by the law, and we're all under the law. So today I invite you to be quiet, shut your mouth, listen, and receive the truth and the fact that God sought you out. He secures your position before him. And you will find a joyful, humbling, sin-curing, ongoing and active, sin-curing fear. So next week, it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And by God's sovereignty, we end up in this next text. Paul starts these next texts, this next section in verse 21 with this. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Because remember, under the law, we are all found just to be needing of condemnation. But apart from the law, God's righteousness is revealed. That's something to be thankful for. We're turning the corner. I'm going to be out of town next week. I'm really sad that I don't get to teach this text. But I'm really excited that Matt Stevens gets to teach. He's one of our other elders. He is a gifted teacher. And um, get to sit in this text. So I encourage you to come back next week. Paul has laid the case out for our incapability to overcome God's judgment on how on our own but now he finally gives the relief so let me pray for us God um, I am humbled by you and I just simply pray that you would humble me shut up my mouth that I would receive and Lord this isn't just for conversion This isn't just for the moment of salvation, but this is for the life in Christ. 
often lives out the reality of the gospel, the good news of God's completed work in him and those who have confessed and believed. So Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be about us stopping doing the wrong things and starting to do the right things, but Lord, that we would allow you to dig into our hearts today. So now as we come to the table, we continue to worship in Jesus' name. Amen.